So when we first receive our our very first meditation instructions, often, check if this is true for you, often we're told to relax and be at ease and to bring some degree of acceptance. Um, and even though those are often what we hear at the beginning, they're really good instructions for a long time, actually. Um, so we often hear this. And it's fairly common, though, um, when trying to practice with these instructions, as we're sitting there, relax, be at ease, um, accept our experience, it's fairly common for people to, at some point, raise their hand and say, so how much should we really just accept? And how valuable really is relaxation? When do we need to step up and do something? <laughs> you know, the kind of, is this, you know, am I being trained to be a doormat kind of um, concern? So my suspicion is that often this question arises out of restlessness and aversion of some kind, which is fine. But I think there is a skillful undercurrent in it that's related to the application of wise effort. And that was the, the theme for today, um, is to look at how we do effort. Now, teachings on effort tend to have uh, two different strands to them. One is how much effort we're applying, and the other is what type. And often the focus will be on what type of effort, because the the four wise efforts uh, are framed that way. You may have heard um, that they're related to four actions of preventing, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining. Um, that's kind of like what type or how we do effort. So I thought that today I would address the other piece, which isn't talked about quite as much, which is how much effort are we supposed to bring in any given moment? Because it does change, and it's an aspect of wisdom to know how much effort is appropriate and not to over or under apply it. So when should we ease up and relax? And when should we push a bit? So I want to apply these questions to our, our effort on the cushion today, because um, as we practice this in sitting meditation, it gives us a much better sense for how to do it in the rest of our life also, because it matters there too, obviously. So I looked through the, you know, the major written teachings to consider how is, you know, how is this talked about? How did the Buddha talk about this in what we know of his teachings? And it's very clear, as you read about effort, that there's really no way to study early Buddhist teachings and not hear the strong emphasis on making effort. <laughs> it's uh, repeated again and again, actually. Effort or energy appears in the most lists. Some of you know that Buddhist teachings are often oriented and organized into lists. And if you... Um, gather up all the different terms that are used in all the different lists and how often they appear, effort or energy is the most, I believe. Second, I think, would be concentration. So we, don't even, we haven't even gotten to mindfulness yet. <laughs> effort is number one. So 
That's interesting, right? And then um, there's the suttas often talk about, I wrote some of these words down, striving, being unremitting, and generating zeal for our practice. Um, it's, it's repeated over and over again. You would never imagine that the kind of instructions that we get here in the West are related to what's said in the teachings, probably because we need to relax truthfully. So here's another quote that the Buddha said about his own quest for awakening. He made this declaration. Gladly would I let the flesh and blood in my body dry up, leaving just the skin, tendons, and bones. But if I have not attained what can be reached through human firmness and human persistence, human striving, there will be no relaxing my persistence. From this heedfulness of mine was attained awakening. From this heedfulness of mine was attained the unexcelled freedom from bondage. Well, that's pretty clear. Um, and there are even suttas where he says, he says that about himself, and then he turns to the monks and said, therefore you should say, may my flesh and blood dry up, etc. So he's very, um, yeah, very clear about that instruction. So clearly we are not expected only to relax and accept. That is um, clear from the teachings. In fact, there are times in practice when very strong physical sensations or emotions will come. You know, that's just part of the practice. And we have to bring forth tremendous strength of attention in order to meet those. Sometimes we can't, but um, if we wanted to, if we really wanted to be mindful, wow, we're going to have to really meet something strongly. Or on the other side, we may be caught in a very powerful wave of sleepiness or torpor and the mind is just falling away. And if we are really committed to being present, we'll have to bring forth a lot of energy and really um, uh, work against this tendency that the mind is having to fall asleep. It's a serious effort maybe needed to stay present. Are you having trouble hearing? It just went out. It went out. I'm sorry. Is it back? Okay. We have this problem sometimes with the speaker. It's, um, its effort is not unremitting. Okay, well, if it becomes, um, if it really cuts out completely, let me know. Sometimes it fades in and out. Okay, so there, there, are, there are times when we need to bring forth a lot of effort. I remember I was on a three-month retreat one time, and every afternoon I was just falling asleep. I thought it would go away after I adjusted to the time zone and other things, but it wasn't happening. My mind was not wanting to be there. So I took up standing meditation, which worked very well. Actually, you can, you can do that even here if you want. I, said in the, I had to do it every afternoon sit. Um, I, would, I would try gamely to sit, and then my mind would just be crashing. And I was pretty committed on that retreat to, to really practicing the whole time, so I stood up. Um, works very well. You don't tend to fall asleep when you're standing up. So that's one strategy. There are other ones. But this, it, um, you know, you have to decide that, that effort is what you want to bring forth in that moment. There are other teachings. They're not only about unremitting, letting your flesh and blood dry up kind of practice. There are other teachings that emphasize the need for balanced effort, and they're much more about um, finding that for yourself. 
So there's one where the Buddha teaches a monk named Sona. And Sona uh, has been doing very vigorous walking meditation um, with his bare feet. And he's walked back and forth and back and forth so much that his feet are bleeding. And so that sounds like what was encouraged in the first, from the first quotes. But the Buddha says to him, no, 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 this is not working for you. And he, um, he appeals to the fact that Sona, back before he was a monk, was a musician. And he, or at least he played an, an instrument. And he said to him, look, uh, if your vena, which is a kind of stringed instrument, sort of like a harp, and he said, if, this, if the strings were to loose, could you play? You know, was it in tune and playable? And he said, no. And he says, well, what if the strings were too tight? Was it in tune and playable? And Sona said, no, then the strings would break. And so the Buddha says, well, that's right. And if, if they're just exactly taught to the right amount, then is it in tune and playable? And Sona says, well, yes. So the Buddha says, okay, in the same way, uh, if your effort is too lax, or if it's too strong, which was clearly what he had been doing, um, your mind is not in tune and playable in a sense. He didn't say it exactly like that, but he said essentially when, he used the word persistence, when one's persistence is neither overly aroused nor overly slack, then the mind can uh, reach concentration, essentially it can develop. And that, of course, worked. That worked for Sona. And once he understood that, because the analogy made sense with his previous life, then he was a little more balanced about his walking and his sitting and how much persistence he was applying, and he became awakened. Along the same lines, there's a, a sutta about a goldsmith, and it appeals to the fact that a provides the analogy that a goldsmith um, does various things. If he's trying to purify gold, he may at sometimes blow on the fire and make it a little hotter. He may sometimes sprinkle water on to cool it down and not have it be so hot. And other times he may just look on with equanimity at as the gold's doing okay, as it is. And so then this is applied to the case of our meditation, is that sometimes we would emphasize concentration and stilling the mind, and sometimes we would emphasize energetic effort, kind of uh, ramping up the mind if it's getting a little dull, and sometimes we would just look on with equanimity. As it's said, if the mind is in a pretty balanced state, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so just allowing the mind to be as it is. So the key in this sutta, similar to the Sona case, is to do what's appropriate in the moment. Um, to bring forth the right amount of effort to keep our task on track, basically. More generally, the Buddha spoke about his own path in this way. He said, By not halting and by not straining, I crossed the flood. When I came to a standstill, then I sank. But when I struggled, then I got swept away. It is in this way, by not halting and by not straining, that I crossed the flood. So that has some specialized language in it, but he's referring, crossing the flood is a phrase for crossing over our um, difficulties in our mind, our suffering, and the tendency of the mind to 
get caught in various floods. And to cross over that is to reach the dry ground on the other side and to be liberated and to not suffer anymore. But he found that he couldn't he couldn't stop. Um, you know, if you don't get a, if you don't swim, you don't get across, and he would just sink. Uh, so that's like if we're not applying enough effort, not really doing anything in our practice. But if he fixed his eyes on the other shore and just rushed forward, uh, he would get whirled about, he said. And so, you know, he had to pay some attention to crossing over a, a rapidly moving stream. You know, you want to kind of flow along with it and then cut this way and then uh, make sure you don't get caught up in the rapids or sucked down into a hole, whatever it is. So there needs to be some attention paid to what's appropriate at a given moment. And by steadily moving in the right way, we will get across. So there's a clear message from these texts that practice is not particularly formulaic or uniform in how much effort we should apply. Um, I remember the teacher Tan Jeff, Tan Nishirobiku, uh, one time saying that he had heard somebody think that the middle way meant that you should always apply a middling amount of effort <laughs> and just, you know, kind of not too much, not too little, just, and he, he thought this was a terrible <laughs> analogy for the middle way. Um, so we're not, we're not talking about just choosing some amount of effort and always doing that, uh, but more like sometimes more, sometimes less, whatever's appropriate at the time. It can even be, though, that what's appropriate is almost no effort at all. And there's support for this in the text also. Consider this interesting verse that I'll, I'll read from two different translators, actually. So the first one is, One insight is that effort is the basis of all suffering. The other insight is that by the complete cooling and cessation of effort, no more suffering is produced. Every form of suffering grows out of effort. Eradicate effort and no more suffering is produced. That's pretty interesting. And then the second translation um, starts out the same way and then says, whatever suffering originates is all conditioned by instigation. With the cessation of instigation, there is no origination of suffering. So one uses the word effort and one uses the word instigation. So I thought I would mention that. The Pali word there is arumba, which um, refers to the inception of energy. It's that first rising to a task or um, making a movement toward doing something. That's called arumba. And so this text is saying that that movement is the source of all suffering. Wow. <laughs> so that's, that's unusual. This is a particularly specialized case. It's, um, it's suggesting that the mind can get to a point where it's so still that any kind of movement like that is essentially an agitation to the mind, right? So if the mind is, and we've maybe seen this to some degree in our practice, you get to a point maybe where there's stillness and some peace and the body's pretty much at ease. And sometimes we can just rest with that 
that's actually what's, what's appropriate, is to, to look on with equanimity, to just rest, to not instigate anything. Um, and we'll continue to stay there until the supportive conditions shift, and then maybe we'll need to do something. But sometimes what happens when we get, we first, especially when we first encounter that calm state, is that we try to do something. You know, we're like, what am I supposed to do now? Nothing's really happening. Maybe I should look for the breath. Maybe I should think about whether or not I'm concentrated. Do you think this is the first jhana? And then, you know, you're not still in calm anymore, are you? Right? So we've instigated a bunch of stuff. We've put it in to a space that didn't need it. And so we come to see at some point how even doing practice, right, even doing practice, even bringing our attention to, okay, now I'm sitting, I'm going to be with the breath, that's actually an instigation of an intention. And when your mind is busy, you need that intention. It's going to help settle you down. But if the mind is actually already quite settled, uh, that can agitate it. So this effort, this effort thing is really tricky, actually. That's why I think there are a lot of questions about it in practice, because it's a whole practice in itself to learn to get wise and compassionate about how much effort we're bringing to a given situation. When does my mind really need to have some instruction and have some direction? And when should it just unfold? And when should I decide that it's okay as it is? So what is going on with all these? I mean, I've, I've pulled out quotes that say everything from kill yourself <laughs> to don't apply any effort. Any instigation will be suffering. Um, so instead of throwing it all out and saying, well, as usual, religious texts are all inconsistent if you look at them deeply enough, which is true, but they're, it's because they're, um, they're subtle you know, and they're applying to a lot of different cases. So the teachings, these teachings, I think, put out, point out the need for wisdom and how much effort to apply. And although I didn't emphasize it, they do um, point a little bit to where we should apply effort. So I want to kind of summarize what we can draw from this uh, mosaic of, of teachings that we've looked at. So first of all, we don't apply effort to work with the content of experience for the most part in this practice. So spending a lot of time thinking about a problem. You know, it's like your mind is telling you all this stuff about that thing you have to do tomorrow. And we say, yes, let me think about now that I'm quiet, I can really think about what I'm going to say to that person tomorrow. That's not really meditation. It might be valuable to do that, but that's there aren't really any instructions I don't think we're taught to hash out arguments or figure things out during sittings. I've never seen that. Neither are we instructed, you may notice, to apply effort toward obtaining pleasant things and getting rid of unpleasant things. Um, you know, to some degree, if we're doing a concentration practice, we are encouraged to follow um, the, the, the ease and peace and relaxation of concentration. So I won't say this is a never never kind of situation, but for the most part, uh, our minds are already exquisitely tuned toward getting as much of the pleasant as we can and getting rid of the unpleasant. That's, most, that's our modus operandi for most of the day, is um, get this, don't have that. This has arisen, I don't want it, get rid of it. 
I don't have what I want. Let's get it. You know, that's the, that's the kind of way that we're oriented. Not that we're seeking out what's unpleasant or getting rid of what's pleasant. It's, it's not like that. But as we've seen from our life, probably, it's a fruitless effort to try to maintain only pleasant and never have any unpleasant. It just doesn't work that way. How's it, how's it working for you after so many decades? Has, have you gotten it yet? I haven't. Um, feeling tone of experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, just changes. And we have some influence, of course, and, and we should you know, make some effort to create a life that is supportive of our deepest values. This is all part of wise living. But trying to make every moment pleasant and trying not to have any unpleasant is not the right strategy because it's not fulfillable. Utejaniya says, we want only pleasant experience. We don't want even the tiniest unpleasant experience. Is this fair? <laughs> right, in a sense. So we're already tuned to that. So instead, the teachings point us toward making effort to generate things that are wholesome and making effort to um, move away from things that are unwholesome or unskillful. That's the pair that we should pay more attention to. Now, luckily, mo many wholesome things are pleasant, so you're still going to get some of that, and many unwholesome things are unpleasant. But there are a few that don't follow those, right? And so we want to slowly tune our mind more toward things that are skillful, things that are helpful, things that are supportive for our practice, whether they're pleasant or unpleasant, and moving away from things that are unskillful, that are going to get us in trouble, that are going to uh, make our life harder, whether those are pleasant or unpleasant, right? And making, learning to make that choice is a step in maturity in our practice. That's more what the teaching about the four wise efforts is about, by the way, the one that I alluded to at the beginning of preventing, abandoning, cultivating, and maintaining. That's all about wholesome and unwholesome. So we are asked, therefore, to put effort into setting up good conditions to creating the container. And that's what we do in meditation. Like when we sit down, um, we put a little bit of effort at least when I guide meditations, I do this. We put a little bit of effort into our posture, for example. Um, sitting upright, but also relaxed. Finding ways where the um, we can let go of some of the tension, where we can be balanced, so we're not going to get uncomfortable in five minutes. You know, these kinds of things. Why do we put effort into that? Well, so because we're creating the conditions for the mind to be able to settle more easily in meditation. We also put effort into the container of our lives, if you want to call it that. So the ethical container. I very much encourage people to live by the five precepts or to, in general, live in alignment with good values. Why? Again, well, of course, because it reduces your suffering and the suffering of others, but also so that you can sit down and meditate. We know that if we've been living in a way that we regret through being mean to people or being very selfish or lying or stealing or, you know, goodness knows, even killing, whatever it is, if we're doing that and then we sit down and try to be calm, the mind's not very calm, you know. Um, there's remorse or whatever it is, 
life is going to throw at us enough things that make us not calm just through our through the randomness and difficulty of living a human life we don't need to make it worse by also behaving in ways that are that are poor so that's all part of the container and that's all also worthy of our effort in addition we can create we can put effort into the container in our mind having good attention. So we cultivate mindfulness. We try to remember to be mindful as many times throughout the day as we can. Why? Because when the mind has more attention, more strength of attention, it's more likely that we won't get rocked off balance by the natural things that occur. We've had experiences maybe where something upsetting came at the end of a long, tiring day, and it was just one thing too many, and we snapped at our child or flew off the handle or something and and we just say you know what you know I, we look back and say i just i couldn't i couldn't do it at that moment and other times when something upsetting happened but we were pretty at ease we were pretty mindful at that moment and we handled it very well and we look back and say yeah i, I had mindfulness i had some attention my attention was up here and whatever was happening was down here and it just didn't bother me you know i came back to my car after a day of meditation and I had a ticket, but I didn't get upset, you know, whereas you come back to your car at the end of a long, tiring day at work and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, ah. so we cultivate mindfulness so that more often we'll have that strength of attention, even if we've had a rough day. So there's that. Um, tending our, you know, cultivating and moving our mind toward having a more equanimous and balanced emotional tone so that. When things happen that are emotionally charged, we have some basis, some, something to settle into. All of these lead toward concentration and eventually insight. So our body and our mind kind of maintaining the container, the conditions around which our life is operating, that's worthy of our effort. Very different from directing our effort toward getting what's going to work for me and getting rid of what doesn't work for me. It's different. And then finally, uh, when the conditions are optimal and things are actually good, when it ain't broke, don't fix it. Just um, take your hands off the wheel at that point and just live. We don't need to be making effort all the time. Uh, people sometimes take on their practice like a, like a burden. <laughs> but the practice of ending suffering should not bring suffering. <laughs> right? We shouldn't take it on as a duty, as an obligation, as an I got to do it and I didn't do it well enough today. That doesn't, that doesn't, that's not in line with cultivating the end of suffering, reaching the conditions for the end of suffering. So um, we don't need to be dogging ourselves 24-7. Could I be more mindful? There are times when actually things are pretty good and we can just enjoy this cup of tea or enjoy this walk or enjoy our friend and it's basically fine and then you know maybe be a little more conscious about our practice at some other moment of the day so the amount of effort you know how much to have on the gas pedal i would say that as we work with our our own body and our mind on the path We'll come to see over time how much effort works well for us under certain conditions. What do we need to bring to certain conditions? 
And furthermore, as our self, you know, as our, our little egotistical self becomes less prominent, which it will through practice, then we will come to rely less and less on what could be called personal effort, you know, the bringing forth of, I am doing my practice, that idea, which, is, which we all do at the beginning. We'll have less of that and more and more relying on kind of the unfolding of the path by its own momentum. You know, like when you're riding a skateboard or a bike and you pedal for a while or you push for a while, um, at some point you don't just push and push and push and push forever. At some point you stop and you're just and you coast for a while and then again you'll you'll maybe pick it up again later. So more and more we'll feel like we have momentum. We've cultivated some momentum, and that actually we start to understand what it means to say that instigation can bring suffering. Then it can feel like personal effort of us saying. I'm going to do this can actually be a little too much or a little too, a little bit off because we may not, we start to have the humility to realize that we may not know what's best on our path. And there's something else that's doing our path. Actually, we don't have to name that as an object or create it as an entity, but the path has a life of its own at some point. So then and it doesn't mean that at that point we're not doing any effort. At any point on the path, we may need to bring very strong effort to something that's coming up, um, even after many decades of practice. But if we've gotten to the point where we're trusting the unfolding of the path, that effort will just come because of wisdom and compassion. It won't come because of me doing it. So it has a different, the path starts to have a different feeling to it, even as there's more and less effort. That's another dimension that you can be aware of as you notice effort. Who's in charge? <laughs> Eventually, wisdom and compassion are in charge. It's a beautiful path, and it's well worth, well worth our effort. Um, maybe eventually we see, I guess, that being at ease and relaxing and accepting is the deepest teaching, <laughs> even though it's the one we get first and the one that we object to. Um, yeah, so please allow this path to be in itself, um, not suffering, not the suffering of pushing too hard and not the suffering of being a little bit slack and letting stuff happen, but finding just that right amount of effort that we proceed down the path like like finding that perfect path down the ski slope. Okay, so those are my thoughts on on effort. And I wonder if you have any questions or comments, we can just spend the rest of the time on QA. Q and R question and response. I don't guarantee I have any answers. Trevor, did you have a question or a comment? I just want to say thank you for putting this on. It's, it's been two weeks since I've been today. I just went back from the monastery. Huge concern was whether or not I would actually be able to sustain the practice. And I think a while back I asked you if it was possible to do that as a lay person. <clears throat> since the two weeks, I've, I've been kind of getting the, the feeling that it is. So it's great to be here. Good. Very good.
This is my wreath. Um, I'm kind of working with some core beliefs that have me believe that if I'm not doing 110, I'll be unsafe. So I really appreciate this focus. And it, um, it helped to have the part about fair, because I think of how unfair it is to myself to not let myself be present for whatever comes up. So, thank you. Okay, yeah. Yeah, this practice will eventually um, run us up against our beliefs about how much we need to do or not do or how we need to do because we have a lot of unconscious mostly they're unconscious ideas about that for some people it's about for a lot of people it's about safety what do i need to do in order to be safe that's one of the big programs of the mind it's one of our purposes of having <laughs> having the mind in some ways at least we think it is and then for other people it's about comfort so I would say safety and comfort are the two. They're related, of course. But some people are more attuned to what's going to be the, the easiest, the simplest, the warmest and fuzziest, that kind of um, program running. And, yeah, so there comes a point where we can kind of begin to see through those, not because they were bad and wrong, um, but because they only are needed at certain times. And so when you can start to see them, that's when you can start to have a choice about when to do it and when not, and eventually um, eventually we'll have the insight that the self that we're trying to protect so much or, or provide comfort for, by its very nature, brings fear and pain. <laughs> you know, the creation of the self is already a, a fraught endeavor <laughs> And so then, then it creates with it the need to protect it. This is a very, um, yeah, very deep belief that we have. You don't have to worry about it too much. It will slowly untangle itself as we bring less and less suffering into our lives. Yeah. Thank you for that. There's an interesting book um, called The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, written by a hospice nurse. And one of them, uh, so they, she frames it as um, five things that people say on their deathbed, I wish such and such. And it's not a depressing book, by the way. She um, frames it pretty well. But one of them is, I wish I had let myself be happier. And there, yeah, there comes over time a sense of, our happiness, you know, obviously, think challenges or non-challenges happen to everybody, challenges and benefits. And there is some degree to which we realize that it's really how much I let myself be happy. <laughs> and then um, there can be some easing up, some easing up of the, the tendency to not let ourselves be happy. What's wrong with this moment? Actually, I mean, really, this moment, we're sitting in a safe room. We've had a lovely day of meditation. Um, it's pretty calm and quiet in here. In the exact, I don't know how your bodies are feeling, but nobody looks like they're needing any the emergency room or anything. So um, 
at this exact moment, it's not bad. And so we can have that moment of, of appreciation. Often there aren't threats in this exact immediate moment. Mostly it's what we invent about the past and the future. That's also a useful insight to have. Yeah. What you just said about the five things that people most commonly say just reminded me of something kind of I find funny that I read someplace was one thing someone said they never hear anyone say on their deathbed is, I wish I had spent more time at the office. Right. (laughs) They don't say that. (laughs) It's true. So many people, you know, do. Yeah. So many hours of the day at the office. Yeah. And they miss many things because of that. Yeah. Thank you for that helpful reminder for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, tan- I tantalized you guys, huh? Okay, so let, let's see if I can do the other four. Um, uh, I wish I had lived the life I wanted to live and not the life that was expected of me. That's a powerful one. I wish I had let myself express my feelings. Um, one of them is related to what you said. I wish I hadn't worked so much. Um, and I wish I had kept in touch with my friends. And then I wish I had let myself be happier. So it's not so so unwise, actually, to live your life such that you will never say these things. It's not too hard. And, uh, well, actually, it could be hard. The first one's hard, living the life that you want to and not the one that is expected of you. That can be a lifelong prospect. But um, all of us can do all of these to some degree immediately. And... Um, Yeah, I think it's worthwhile. Provides a little map for living. Good living. All right, well, let's do a a quick dedication of merit, and then um, Susan has one thing to say. So, just bringing to mind the goodness of our practice today, whether you were here the whole day or part of the day, just knowing that the mind and body had something wholesome come into them through the goodness of this practice, and then wishing that we're able to share that in some way. We don't have to apply a lot of effort to how we share it, but it'll just be maybe with us as we go out and encounter other beings, as we're driving home, whatever we're doing or riding home. And... Just sending the wish that all beings may benefit from calmness of mind, ease of body, and having a path of some kind. So may all beings be happy, may all beings be peaceful, and may all beings everywhere find freedom. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.